Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. It is the 3rd of September 2020. It's the 3rd of September. How did September come around so quickly? Uh, I'm recording this actually in my hotel room. I'm in London right now, so you'll have to excuse me if the intro is not up to the usual audio quality standards uh, because I'm on my remote gear. I've been working on a project, film project, here in London all week, and eventually I fly home on Saturday. Uh, but it's kind of nice to have a camera in my hand again. I haven't made any films or done a whole heap of photography for the last few months, um, mainly because the world has been locked down, I haven't been traveling, and I've actually been using my time to work on my house, which is something I haven't had time to do for the last couple of years. Uh, so I am thankful for that. But anyway, into this show. First up, a big thank you to my top-tier Patreon supporters, which this week include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RDContracting.co.uk, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, the guys at South Esher Stalking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, and Mark Zabrowski. But also... Um, a really heartfelt thank you to all the other Patreon supporters. I've had a handful in the last uh, two weeks uh, which are not top-tier s- supporters, and so you don't get your name mentioned. Uh, I do send you some swag, uh, but it really makes a difference when I get that support in, even if it's just a dollar a month. It gives me that sort of push to keep doing this, uh, believe it or not. It may seem like a small amount, and it's almost like beyond the monetary value. Uh, it just gives me the, the enthusiasm to keep putting this podcast out there. So thank you very much if you've joined recently, and thank you so much if you've supported the podcast for a long time. If you would like to support the podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. Just my name, forward slash Byron Pace. Two weeks ago... I ran a competition, as we do on all of the long-form podcast episodes. For for those of you who've been listening long enough, you will know that. And that is to win a copy of Modern Huntsman, who, of course, are our partners on this podcast. And in fact, without the support of the patrons and Modern Huntsman, these shows wouldn't exist because I quite simply wouldn't have the time to do this. I'd have to go and do other things, make more films, do more photography. I love bringing these podcasts to people because I really enjoy having deep and meaningful conversations with awesome people from around the world. So I asked you to simply go and follow my Instagram page, which is uh, at Byron J. Pace. And uh, I picked somebody who, who followed in the last two weeks. And the winner picked at random from the people who followed the page in the last two weeks is Jess McClothan. I had to say your surname probably four or five times and edit it out because I just kept on fumbling it. But hopefully I haven't messed it up. McClothan, which is Jess McClothan Media on Instagram. Congratulations, you get your choice of Modern Huntsman volumes one through to five. However, uh, volume five is actually out of stock both here in the UK and in the States. So if you want to get a copy of, of volume five, uh, then you will have to wait until we do a print run, which is going to be very, very soon. But one through to four is sitting, waiting to be shipped out if you'd like to order a copy. And uh, if that's the co- if you want one of those copies, Jess, I'll be able to get those out to you as soon as you contact me. And you can get hold of me, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. 
Of course, we're going to be running another competition uh, because I know all of you would like to get your hands on a copy of Modern Huntsman. Uh, I'm going to run this competition on Twitter, which is not something I think I've ever done before uh, because historically I wasn't much of a Twitter user, although I have been using it a lot more. Uh, in fact, I kind of talked down Twitter for many years, but I found it a really good way for me to consume news if I'm following a select number of of the right Twitter accounts. So I kind of use it as a newsfeed. I use a couple of things for newsfeed, but Twitter has become one of those things where um, it's been yeah, it's been really useful. And in fact, some of the podcast guests that we've had on over the last month or two have come from people who I've been introduced to on Twitter. So head over to at Byron J Pace if you're a Twitter user and uh, hit me up with, with a comment, share the podcast, uh, just let me know that you're interacting in some way. And uh, anyone who does that in the next two weeks, I'll enter you into a randomly selected list of people who will be in with a chance to win your choice of Modern Huntsman. And uh, if you want to find out more about the Modern Huntsman publication, head over to modernhuntsman.com. In fact, actually, the day after this podcast goes out, my first online contribution for the publication will be going live, which is going to be a brand new monthly column that I'm going to be writing. And it, it's all focused on um, conservation and the, the environment and ecology. Uh, it's taking a deep dive into uh, articles and media that's out there that I think makes for essential reading. It's us trying to point to other great work that's out there. And uh, I consume a lot of this on a weekly basis, so I just want to share it with everybody else. And you'll be able to find that on the Modern Huntsman website. So that's modernhuntsman.com. And so into this week's show, I sit down, well, sit down virtually and have a chat with uh, Mansell Denton, who I actually connected with over Instagram maybe two months ago, three months ago. And uh, eventually we, we got on the phone together and uh, hooked up this podcast. This is a, a really deep dive spiritual conversation in many ways, and one that I, I thoroughly enjoyed having with Mansell. And so I don't want to hold you up anymore, uh, because this is a really fascinating conversation with somebody who has uh, a truly unique and gripping story that I think everybody who listens to this show will be able to find some inspiration from. So without any further delay, I bring you Mansell Denton. Mansell, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. How are you doing today? Well, I'm looking out at a beautiful red oak tree at a friend's house, and that always makes me feel happy. Well, that's a lot better than my view, because I'm looking at uh, a white wall and a TV screen that's off in a hotel in the middle of London right now, which is... Not my normal kind of environment, but I happen to be in London working this week and uh, with my evenings relatively free after like a whole day of filming. So that's how we managed to tie up this time. So your view beats mine. I'll take the win. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's the last couple of weeks been uh, like for you? What's, what state am I speaking to you in? Because you are over in America, but where, whereabouts in America? Yeah, I live in Texas, and until about a week ago, I was living in Austin, Texas. Now, I am having a brief stint in Dripping Springs, Texas, which for anybody who knows the geography, it's about 20 to 35 minutes west of Austin, so still close to the big city, but I'm out on 25 acres and enjoying some uh, deepening 
of my relationship with with nature and that land specifically. Tremendous. So what uh, what, what what prompted the move? Was it just to to be out of a city? Well, honestly, it was a lot of serendipity. I have a very close friend who I met doing some medicine work, uh, specific entheogen called ayahuasca. And he, he has always been close to me. He lets me hunt on his property and that 25 okay. acres, that's where I've hunted for the past two years. That's where I've done other different ceremonies and things like that. And he just had a, you can call it a spiritual experience doing some breath work where he was told, given some message that he needed to invite me to come live with him for free. And he has a huge house. His, <laughs> his kids are all out of the house. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a enormous opportunity. And, and I was really grateful that, uh, that I was given the opportunity even for just a short period because it's a, really special place. And I was already looking to kind of simplify. And this year I've got, you know, I'm going to be gone for 40% of the fall and winter, just either facilitating hunts or hunting myself. So um, having kind of a, a home base that I wasn't paying rent to nowhere felt like a really great opportunity. Fantastic. So you, you already have a, a packed season ahead of you by the sound of it. Yes, very packed, and I'm both excited and a little anxious about how it will turn out and how people will uh, enjoy the experiences. But so, it's part of it. So I, will, I guess we'll. We're, if I ask you about that, I'm kind of missing a whole heap of background. So we'll get to the hunts that you're running because I'm, I'm assuming you're doing it with with clients. Are you? Yes. Yeah, I'm doing yes. it with clients. Okay. Cool. So let's get to that. But before we get to that. You didn't take up hunting all that long ago, did you? No, it was at this point now only two and a half years ago that I had my first hunting experience. Well, that's really not that long ago. So how how and why, what facilitated it? Because do you mind me asking how old you are? I'm 29. You're you're 29, so like it's not late to 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 come to hunting. You know, there's plenty of people who come to like literally in the middle age, but it's out with the the uh, what a lot of people would consider a kind of a normal routine, which is that you're taught how to do it either by your parents or or your grandparents from a young age. Uh, it's maybe a little bit more common, say, in the last decade with this uh, move towards people who are more conscious about where their food comes from. Um, I, I, I hate to, to, to use the phrase, but the, the kind of the, the evolution of the hipster hunter, uh, I, I mean, I, I embrace it. Not that I would really class myself as one, but I embrace everybody who wants to you know, see what this world is about and, and try and understand their food better. So I don't say it in, in a derogatory term, but that has uh, pulled a lot of people in of probably the age that you and I are now. Um, so, so what was your journey into it? Great question. And I do resonate in some way, not at all with the term hipster, mostly because I live in Austin, Texas, which is drowning <laughs> in hipsters. But I do resonate with the initial call being a closer connection with my food. And strangely enough, I was raised a vegetarian or de facto vegetarian because my mother is from India. She essentially cooked every meal in 
in my childhood. And because of that, I, I, I tried different meat products, but I generally speaking was vegetarian. And when I got into my twenties and started to play highly competitive soccer, I played in Europe for a couple of years. I came back to the States and played and I realized how much better I felt eating meat. And that kind of segued into my questioning around where I'm sourcing my meat and why I have this perception that meat comes from grocery stores and from restaurants. And so there was definitely a piece in my journey that was related to the food, but there was this whole other side of the story where, and we can go into this if you like, but when I was 19, 20 years old, I behaved like most young males poorly and ended up <laughs> arrested and convicted and had a felony on my record. I spent time oh, wow. in prison when I was 24 years old for about six months. And so after those experiences, they, I, it really, in retrospect, it was a rite of passage. It was a time period for me where I was forced to go from kind of an aloof, uh, ignorant boy to a man who could you know survive the challenges of prison and in that journey i had a lot of questions about what it meant to be a man what it meant to be the most moral the most uh, self-developed self-actualized person that i could be and i turned to many different practices and hunting was on the list somewhere in my mid 20s so i think 27 or so is when i decided that I was going to go hunting for the first time. And I like to believe that there was some more cosmic plan behind it because when I wanted to hunt, because I was a felon, technically I wasn't allowed to use a rifle. And so I went straight into archery hunting and it provided such a intimate experience, a far more committed practice that it really encouraged me to fall in love with the practice more than I would have if I would have just, you know, hunted with a rifle. Wow, that's amazing. Now, do, you, do you mind if we, and I ask this question because I wonder whether there's uh, anyone listening to the podcast who um, is either in a phase of their life where they maybe feel like they're losing their way, either just that they don't quite know what their purpose is, or maybe that they've um, you know found themselves in very difficult situation. You know, maybe even you know, brushing up against the law. What was the 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 sort of chain of events and circumstances that got you to being imprisoned? Given the little that I know about you today, it it, it almost seems like how. How did that happen to to this person that uh, that I see before me now uh, when you were a young man? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it has a lot of it parallels, or it is involved in my hunting practice. It's involved, I think, for a lot of people who are probably feeling similar or have felt similar in their life. When I was growing up, I felt a pretty big disconnect between what it meant to be a man what what it what it 
what were the definitions? What were the practices? How did we embody it? And my father you know, did the best he could, but he didn't impart the wisdom that in retrospect I would have wanted. And some of the things that many men, and definitely was the case for me, pick up in the absence of a strong you know, masculine role model is, is relationships with women being some kind of definition or defining factor in masculinity. And for me, there was definitely growing up a lot of a lot of shame around the fact that I'm not fully white, but I was primarily living in an upper middle class, you know, white neighborhood in Texas. And there was inferiority feelings, there was insecurities, and it all culminated in essentially a woman that I had a relationship with briefly, she moved back home to Switzerland. And in my, you know, yearning to feel loved and my insecurity to be loved, I was working in a museum and I stole historical documents out of the museum when I was 18, 19 years old. I sold the documents and I used that money to go be with her in Europe. Wow. Yeah. So it was very a crime of passion in a way, in a way. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, it took me a long time to, it took me going to prison for six months. It took me four years, five years after the fact for me to reflect on and grow through my own insecurities, my own, uh, shadow, if you will, if you're familiar with Jungian archetypes in order to, identify that it was coming from a place of insecurity, it was coming from a place of shame, it was coming from a wound, some wound. And I think it's a wound that a lot of young adolescent males feel, especially given how few rites of passage, how few strong, healthy role models of masculinity there are. This seems like a a kind of a a trite question, given the depth of the the answer that you've just given me, but I am curious as to how on earth you got caught. Well, they had a pretty good, they kept a pretty good log of things, even though I naively believed that they didn't. And so (laughs) I went, I actually spent two years in Europe and then when I came back, they were not waiting for me at the airport, but they were waiting for me bef- right before I left to go back to Europe uh, from that trip. They raided the house. They came with you know dozens and dozens of different FBI, local police, Texas Rangers. It was pretty intense experience for a 19-year-old. Jeez, Wow. And I mean, what when something like that happens, what what runs through your mind? You obviously knew why they were there because you knew that you just got away with it for the last two years. But what is running through your mind with regard to your future at that point? Or was that were you not in it? Was that not a a, um, a place in your life where you, you were really projecting forward about the kind of person you want to be? I was. I did project forward, but I had a path that included history and included many of the things that I actually still have an interest in, but in a very different capacity. There was a almost no self-starting 
at least as far as my future was concerned, I didn't really have much of a self-starting attitude. I didn't have much of an entrepreneurial attitude. I didn't have a much of a um, a thought that I would be in any kind of business or any uh, opportunity like that. I, I really just wanted to either go into the Foreign Service or the Peace Corps or, or do some kind of study of history. And I believed that all of that was ruined. I believed that I definitely had a fear that people would not want to hire me. People would not want me to work with them because of this felony. And a lot of things came up, but shock was amongst them. And there was a period for sure after I was initially arrested where one of my darkest moments, I remember I was living with my parents. I had no money. I had I couldn't go back to school because the semester had already started. I didn't have a job. I basically would binge watch TV and eat pretty terrible food. And I can distinctly remember that desire to escape my reality through TV. So it was a challenging time and it was a very confronting time because I had led a pretty relaxed and luxurious upper middle class life the thought or the prospect the shame the embarrassment of this arrest and it was very public it was in the news i had friends reaching out to me it was even worse wow and what what was it that i mean i know it wasn't a particularly long period of time that you actually spent in prison but uh, i can't even imagine that short a time being in that kind of uh, confinement with the lack of freedom. What was it that that carried your you through, and how did your sort of mind reset to pick yourself up once you eventually got out again? Well, my prison experience was split into two very distinct sections, and. My first half of my experience, so I was there for six months. The first three months were so much resistance. I felt like a victim. I felt uh, disempowered. I would go back to the habit of you know watching TV and movies in order to pass the time, eating poorly as much as I could, you know, find sweets and things like that in prison. And I remember a moment. And this is probably the rock bottom moment of my life, but I was speaking with my family on the phone. My lawyer essentially said, even though he thought I was going to get out sometime after three months, he didn't really know what was going to happen. My mother told me that my grandfather probably was going to die of cancer before I could see him again. And my sisters were too young to really understand that I was in prison, but they missed me. And there was a lot of sadness in the whole family. And I remember just going to my bunk, putting the blanket over my head. And even though it's not something you're supposed to do in prison, I just started crying and kind of kept it quiet to myself. But it was such a hopeless experience for me and had some really beautiful support that came from you know people in prison that wouldn't have I wouldn't have expected it from prior judgments yeah this this one guy who was in he was in prison for gun charges and pimping uh he literally just 
put his he just tapped me on the back and was like, head up, keep your head up. Um, little acts of kindness like that. I remember when you know my judgments would have me not consider them to to be so sentimental, but. The th- second three months of my experience were completely different. I don't know what it was. Perhaps a huge part of it was my upbringing. My parents are, you know, for all their flaws, they did a great job raising me. It was a lot of my privilege. It was a lot of uh, some other divine uh, intervention and perhaps some of my own personality. But I woke up the next morning and I just decided that – I did not have control of many things, but what I did have control of, I was going to own fully. So I I started fasting. I started working out pretty much every day. And I went to the library. And instead of, you know, watching TV, I was reading the Bhagavad Gita. I was reading Flow. I was reading uh, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. I was just reading anything and everything that would help me improve my philosophy, my outlook on life. And my whole experience in the second half of prison changed. And it was a very freeing experience. And it was a very empowering experience because I walked away and I still have a very strong sense of confidence in myself. If I can survive that, if I can control my mind regardless of the situation externally, then I have a certain level of agency. I might not have freedom, I might not have power, but I definitely have agency. And that is a a huge takeaway that I've had when I got out of prison, that I've had since then, and it served me well. Were you able to kind of relate to anybody uh, within the prisons uh, within the prison system i from the outside and i i gather what i know of american prison systems by what i watch on tv and and what i've read uh, it, it doesn't look like the kind of place that you ever want to find yourself in and i'm intrigued and the reason i i probe this question is just because of the the small insight that you already gave me behind this character who tapped you on the back and said you know keep your head up what was your your experience of the people within the system that you interacted with? Well, obviously there are really heavy, like super max prisons, but by and large, I was in the general population with pretty much everybody else for a long period. And there's a lot more camaraderie and shared experience, shared trauma, if you will, than any of the shows make it seem. We all are there against our will. We all have some level of trauma, some shame, some guilt, some, in some cases, denial, whatever it is, there's shadow in all of us that is in need of healing and support. And we're all, to put it more simply, in a shitty situation. And There's a certain level of camaraderie that comes from that. I even had for some time afterwards a little bit of nostalgia around how closely you connect with other people and in some ways how supportive everybody kind of has to be. It's a lot more communal. If you think about some of the things that might have showed up in hunter-gatherer societies, indigenous people, some of those 
tend to show up for better and for worse. Um, there's definitely, you know, issues of violence and, uh, you know, factionalism, but by and large, the, the rule is if you don't seek trouble, you're not going to find any. And I was obviously very clear with people like, I don't want any trouble. I don't want to join anything. I just want to do my time and get the heck out of here. And because of that, I tended to have a lot of, a lot of common humanity. I was also really very excited by and passionate about fitness and health and things like that. Before I even went to prison, I had started uh, multiple businesses in the health and fitness space before I was in prison. In fact, I was actually managing some of them while I was in prison. And because of that, I just had a certain knowledge and prowess where they would call me, you know, doctor, or they would call me professor as kind of a, a, a loving terminology. And I showed them different ways of working out. I showed them different ways of eating. I educated them in certain ways. And so they had a, a lot of respect for me. And it generally was... That worked in your favor. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Did Were you offered any kind of supportive uh, rehabilitation during that time? Or is this sort of new finding of who you are, was that completely... Um, of your own uh, fruition? Well, at some level, I was afforded some luxuries that other people weren't uh, because I was a white collar crime. It was nonviolent. It was, uh, I guess, you know, how they treat the judicial systems a little bit biased. And because it was nonviolent and white collar, they allowed me to work in the library and you have jobs. Everybody has a job. Some people are in the kitchen, et cetera. Because I was, I had a college degree. They put me in the library, and that was a huge blessing. That it required me to invest time and to take the opportunity to read the books that were going to be impactful for me to help me grow. But it was also a luxury, a privilege that was afforded me. And as far as my personality was concerned. I did get lucky that I was arrested four years before I went to prison. So I had an initial jolt to wake me up to the type of person that I was, the type of behavior that I was exhibiting. And in that four-year period, I grew a lot. I went to do like 10-day meditation retreats. I did I started my own businesses. Entrepreneurship comes with its own challenges that help with personal growth. And so I'd already taken a few steps on the path. Going to prison kind of brought me a few steps backwards, but I had some basis there already that I could draw upon when I was ready to stop resisting and just surrender to the experience. Amazing. So you're out now. What... Uh what was what was the life in front of you as you stepped out of prison well it was in many ways felt pretty bleak the business that i had started was doing great i mean six figures a month and it was essentially taken from out from underneath me because i didn't have any leverage or or anything while i was in prison so kind of got that um taken from me. I didn't have a place to live. I wanted to live in Austin, but I was back in my hometown of San Antonio, which 
came with its own weight. So I still had a lot of shame from going to prison in the first place. So it was tough. It was tough to come out the first month or two, but I slowly started to gain momentum, slowly started to use the same tools that I had when I was in prison at the end. Although it was jarring, it was much easier for me, obviously, to seize on my personal growth. And I was able to you know, do some very specific work uh, called the Mankind Project, doing some men's work, uh, doing some other practices. I started jujitsu. So I was able, you know, afforded a lot of, of, of opportunities to engage in practices and uh, facilitated containers, if you will, for more of my own growth. But, um, you know, I had a certain level of confidence in my abilities financially, in my abilities business wise, but it was pretty bleak nonetheless, you know, getting dropped off at. I think it was 11 p.m. I got out. My dad picked me up and I just go home and I feel like eating every unhealthy thing in the place because I've been eating nonsense for six months. Yeah, just looking for that comfort. What was the what was the conversation with your dad like in the car on like after you got out? Well, there was some hard conversations at the beginning. There were some challenging conversations all throughout the experience. But after four years, a lot of money, a lot of tears, a lot of hardship. Honestly, my whole family grew a lot closer together. And we're still very close for that reason. They rallied around me. They very much felt like our son made a mistake but it's our job to support him. He's obviously, you know, seeking a better outlook on life and a better uh, way of behaving in the world. And so uh, generally it was just happiness that I was back, that I was out and that I was safe. Um, I think for parents, especially watching some of the same things that you watch, uh, there's a fear yeah. <laughs> that your son might be. Uh, I don't make a habit of watching them, but I have, <laughs> obviously, you, every every second TV show that's on uh, that's on the screen here shows you an insight and especially an American prison seemed to be a, a favorite place to pick, which is why I brought that up. Uh so how I'm I'm just trying to work out the timeline here now. So you, you were arrested at 19, but four years, and then you did your time. So how old are you by the time you came out? When I came out, I was 24 years old, and went in 20 at 23, came out at 24, and then there was a pretty quick uh, growth curve after I got out of prison and. You know, it was only two to three years after that that hunting became a reality for me. Okay, so um, t- talk to me about that that journey because it's one thing deciding, hey, I want to, I want to try this. It's another thing actually finding the route to to go and do it. Did you have mentors? What was the was there any other catalyst that that took you down that road apart from a curiosity about being more responsible for your food? There was, I think that I had, like many men, I had seeded in my awareness, my consciousness was people like Joe Rogan or any of the other more public figures that were speaking about hunting. I was in the health and 
fitness space, it's so tangential. I mean, I had, I don't know if you're familiar with Aubrey Marcus, but he, yeah, he's uh, he's been on Joe's podcast a few times. Yeah, exactly. And and so I had met with him and I had a lot of connection with the the psychedelics and the nootropic side of things. And one day I just saw Ben Greenfield, who's another one in that space, uh, that I, he was a colleague at the time. I just saw that he had hunted and he had a guide and I just asked him for an introduction to his guide. And that was kind of the, the catalyst was just... Uh, you know, following, following the next step. It's just like, just like when you're hunting and tracking, you just kind of find the next footprint and find the next one. And you're not thinking too far ahead. You're just kind of paying attention and finding the next one. And that's kind of how it went. It was uh, honestly a lot of naivete in how I approached it, but uh, it worked out. So what? Where where did you go for your first experience of, of hunting? Well, my first you must have had to you must have to do it because you said you picked up a bow, which it takes. It's not like a rifle. You can get comfortable with a rifle. You can be comfortable enough with a rifle to hunt ethically pretty quickly, but a bow takes a little bit longer. Yeah. Well. This is where the story ter- starts to become a little bit more mystical in my meaning-making machine of my mind. Okay. I'm all for meaning-making. <laughs> it's important. We all need to meaning-make in our lives. Yeah. So what happened was I had this bow hunt that was on the schedule. It was for December, early December. I was going to hunt in the Texas Hill Country pretty standard hunt for white-tailed deer um, hunting from a blind on a feeder. Uh, Felt like as a clueless beginner, that was a good place to start. No problems with that. And I was at the same time, very accidentally, decided to go with a group of, I think it was 12 men to, to a basically a men's ayahuasca retreat. And so for those who don't know, ayahuasca is a very, um, it's one of the most potent psychedelic brews. It is made in the jungle. It's been used for thousands of years. Uh, Many of the people in the jungle use it for visions, for uh, entheogen means connecting to higher power, and also to, they use it to hunt oftentimes in the jungle. It's a root, is it? It's a vine, and it's, it's combined vine. with uh, many different admixtures, but chacruna leaves are the common admixture, and that's what creates this uh, this DMT-based psychedelic compound. But I went to do this men's retreat, and the first night was incredibly profound. And at one point in the experience, I remembered thinking or seeing the deer that I was going to hunt in my mind's eye and in that emotional altered state of consciousness, I just started crying, thinking about the fact that I was going to kill that animal. As someone who had never done it before, it was a pretty uh, intense new reality. And for the first time ever in my life, because I grew up, my parents were very scientifically minded. They both had PhDs. I had zero relationship with uh religion or higher power or anything like that 
And in that moment, uh, with tears streaming down my face, I just asked God, universe, whatever, please allow my arrow to go straight through the heart of the animal and kill it as quickly and as painlessly as possible. And as part of that experience, I went back home and for a month, I practiced rigorously knowing that God was not going to make it happen. I had to do it myself or I had to at least be, at least was a 50, 50 split. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I got to do my part. And so I did that. I went on the hunt and for many days had opportunities, but didn't take the shot, didn't take the shot. And then the second to last day I had an opportunity, took the shot and to everyone, including the guides, amazement, the arrow went straight through the heart. And at this point now, facilitating other people, I think it's quite a common story. There's something a little mystical that goes on with people's first shots. But to me, I felt in many ways that I had asked for supernatural aid, go, uh, aid going back to the hero's journey with Joseph Campbell, and I had been granted that aid. And it felt very powerful to me in solidifying a relationship with a higher power. And I have, uh, I had an experience a month later as well that was pretty powerful. We can go into that if you'd like, but that's that's kind of how the the practice and how the archery experience went. Uh, what was it that... Uh drove you to the to, to seek out this the, the ayahuasca um like camp before you said you said it was just by coincidence that it worked out that way but had you up to that point you'd already exp- um experimented with psychedelics or was that your first experience of ayahuasca it i had already experienced ayahuasca i had already experienced other psychedelics in retrospect, a big part of what made that experience super powerful was, uh, for one, the shaman that I worked with uh, is a true, true master, and I have since not found someone who's better at holding space. Also, a uh, girlfriend and I were having some serious challenges at that time in our relationship, and so I was very in a vulnerable somewhat insecure place, very open, receptive to uh, that type of medicine. And then it was a men's retreat. It was meant to focus on men's work in in a way, masculinity, what it means to be surrounded and supported by a group of men. And there were some pretty intense experiences that came with that. But in that quest for discovering my own masculinity for defining it for myself for finding it myself that men's retreat was extra compelling to me you've you've sown the seeds now so now i'm intrigued what was the experience that came a month after your first hunt i mean obviously it must have impacted you um well clearly from what you've said it's impact it impacted you in a very profound way but to the point where you wanted to go and do it again Yes. And the at the time back then, I was very much of the opinion that I could go do this work, but I didn't want to like get too deep with it. The more one does it, well, 
I'll put it this way. There are certain people who are just called to it more than others. And there's certain people who are called to go deeper with it than others. And there's many different types of medicines. Like the same is true for hunting. And I've chosen to go very deep with that. I decided not to go very deep with meditation. So it's just kind of like this modality and there's many different types of modalities and people choose which one and they identify with certain ones and then they go deeper with it. And ayahuasca very much felt like it was a, a modality or practice that resonated with me. The first time was incredibly powerful. Then going on the hunt was was powerful as well. And I got into this phase for a couple of you know, basically the, 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 the December where I had the hunt and then leading up to, uh, the, the second ayahuasca experience where I was fascinated by death and obviously partially related to the fact that I had just killed this animal. Taken a life. Yeah. yeah. And I remember reading the denial of death by Ernst Becker. I remember reading When Breath Becomes Air, which is a fantastic book, a beautiful book. Um, and, and then I, there was another book, um, the Body Keeps the Score that I was reading, which it's a psychologist whose hypothesis, and it's been pretty well proven by now, is that the body holds trauma. It's not just trauma is not just held in the brain. It's actually in our body. And there was something about that book, something about the whole journey around death that seeded a lot of my experience going into the second ayahuasca retreat. So I went into the second ayahuasca retreat. I actually took the skin of the antelope that I had killed. So I had this skin. I still have it today. It still has the head on it and everything. It's a, uh, generally makes non-hunters who have never seen a dead animal balk a little bit, which is part of the reason why I have it. But I took that with me and I had a some serious connection to that animal and some serious like spiritual. I remember at one point I was, and this, this all seems super real. I don't know if you've done ayahuasca or you know anyone. Who I, I, I have not. I am. I have, I have zero experience of drugs outside of alcohol, alcohol and nicotine and f like pharmaceuticals over the counter that everybody takes. Yeah. So to put some context around this, this experience, when you go really deep, which I did, it creates such a vivid reality that it is reality. I mean, it, it is indistinguishable from your waking reality. And so in this state, at a very deep level, I remember myself, my current self, the dead version of me, the person who has already passed on into the next realm, and then this dead antelope, all we were sitting on a porch the antelopes near me were on rocking chairs. We're all just kind of connecting. And I was in this place of connection with the antelope. And given the book that I was reading about how the body holds trauma, I realized if I hold trauma in my body, then animals hold trauma in their body. And that realization made it very clear to me that I had no desire to eat the trauma of all the factory farmed animals that I was either participating in consciously or unconsciously. And so I made some commitments in that ayahuasca retreat that I was only going to eat 
meet that I either killed or caught or had some type of close relationship with, like a friend who killed it or something like that. And that commitment really forced me to deepen my practice in hunting. It forced me to really commit to more experiences, more learning, and it led to documentary opportunities. It led to a a number of things, but it was a pretty profound life altering experience to make that commitment. Yeah, it's that's amazing the the journey that you took to come to that realization. And I'm I'm curious uh before we go on uh, carry on talking about your hunting, but clearly you know your ex- your experience was profoundly positive from what you've just described, but you were there with other people in the ayahuasca retreats. Was that was generally speaking the experiences were they positive for people? Yeah, I have not met a single person who says that they do not want to lean further into doing ayahuasca because of how powerful it is. Now, don't get me wrong, there are people who the same day of the experience, they're like, I don't want anything to do with it. I've been there myself. There are people who go through some really tough, challenging things. And I have also been there myself. And it's not pleasant necessarily. It is considered work for a reason. However, when all the dust settles, almost everybody that I've ever spoken to has had positive experiences when they've worked with the right set and setting. So the right shaman who's leading them, the right com- you know, comfortable, safe environment in order to do that work. It's a world that I have no benchmark for, but it's, it's, it's intriguing and, and, and utterly fascinating. I have a, a very good friend who has described psychedelics to me at, at, in quite some length, um, but it's just interesting to hear another, another take. Yeah, and you know, for myself, I think one of the most impactful draws towards psychedelics is I approach both hunting, I approach my life, I approach almost everything through a lens of of a kind of a nature-based spirituality that is very similar to indigenous cultures. And in fact, I have many relationships with indigenous cultures that inform my beliefs. And almost universally, these cultures utilize mind-altering either plants or mushrooms or other substances. And so there's a lot of historical context for it. There's even a lot of uh, interspecies context for it. Other species, almost every, uh, there's many, many, many other species that alter their state of consciousness in order to interrupt their the patterns that they're in, even though it's evolutionarily dangerous to do so. Like an animal who's tripping is ripe for being consumed and killed, but they do it because of how valuable it is for changing their patterns of their mind. I, I'm imagining this this kind of outer body experience as you're as you're describing it to me, and uh, but I, I guess it's something that you can't even come um, close to to imagining unless you've actually experienced it. Yeah, and there's other there's other portals to it as well. I mean, I have 
completely blacked out and went to some crazy places literally just doing something called kundalini yoga which is basically breath work so breath work can, can do it there's many different ways without substances interesting well i that's, that's uh, maybe there'll be people listening to this who are intrigued enough to go and, and dig more into it but i'm conscious of the fact that we've talked for uh what like almost an hour already and there's so much more that i want to speak to you about so uh, tell me how, how your your desire to carry on hunting moved on from that first experience because we've only talked about the, your sort of first hunt and as we started this podcast you told me that your your entire seasons looks like it's booked up and you're going to be taking clients out that that seems a big jump from two and a half years ago yes big jumps seem to be my forte <laughs> um what happened is after I made the commitment that I did around the meat that I wanted to eat, I decided I need to hunt a bigger animal. I need to take it to the next level. And that's part of my personality as well. I probably could have just decided that I was going to hunt a bunch of whitetail in Texas and then just keep doing that over and over again and feed myself. But I decided I wanted to hunt for elk in the mountains and again, part of what calls me to hunting is that is all of the development that can come as a human from that experience. So the idea of, yes, being in a blind, waiting for an animal, there's a certain reverence I have for that patience. There's a certain skill and there's, a, there's many uh, positive attributes that come from that. And it's another experience to be hiking 50 miles up and down the mountain in order to kill an elk. And so I decided that I was going to do that at the end of, of uh, my first year, basically a year after my first hunt. And again, back to a little bit of mystical, the person who was sitting next to me in the men's retreat for ayahuasca just so happens he was and is a Sundance award-winning filmmaker. So he's done <laughs> no way. many, yeah, many um, cool. great films. And he got to see the beginning of the journey. He visited town and he got to see the commitments that I was making. And he got to see that I was taking this journey to, to do uh, an elk hunt. And he wanted to capture it in some way. And so um, really quickly, I raised... A uh, hundred thousand dollars from some friends. We put what? together. You raised a hundred thousand dollars to make a dog. To make a dog. That's unreal. Uh, I'm not even going to let you just gloss over that. I mean, that that's a serious feat to raise that amount of money to make a documentary. I mean, documentary filmmaking is that's that's my day job. Is notoriously hard to get funding for, especially you know for for something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I owe again. This is where it starts to, for me, become much bigger than me. As much as it is a feat, I am very yes. I'm very passionate. I'm very excited about things, and I think that um, that spills over into other people, and it can be uh, highly um, influential. But at the same time as well, I was 
feeling that I was being supported. You know, my spiritual teacher, his name's Will Starhart. He's 81. He's a um, Muscogee Creek teacher. And, and I've been working with him for six years. And he, he always tells me, the plants chose you, Montel. Like the ayahuasca, in the ayahuasca experiences, in that first hunt, it was the universe creating the experience that I would step into my dharma or my life's path, so to speak. And so when I raised that money, I very much saw that as, oh, this is divine intervention. This is like the universe conspiring for me, as the alchemist says. And so that led me to take it a step further. It led me to some meetings with some great people that I you know, never would have met with. It led me to speak with uh, a group of my friends in Austin, Texas about my experience. And I had, and this is kind of where things started to take off is we raised the hundred thousand. I went on the elk hunt. We captured everything on film because Barlow is, you know, artistic and he has to do something crazy like that. So we're traipsing around public land in Idaho with giant cameras and processing film in the middle of the woods. And I am speaking with my friends and my friends are saying that they have never thought about hunting in the way that I'm describing it. And they've never wanted to hunt until I described it the way that I did. And so I set up a hunt for this group of my friends. It was initially, it was, you know, six people. And for me, it was nothing more than creating a place for my friends to have this experience as well. And I, of course, I wanted to share it and I wanted to do it. Um, but I, I didn't, I was following the desires and the ideas of any of other people in a way. And I guess that's kind of how all good businesses start. And that experience and the documentary and then my personal practice, which if you'll remember, I'm still trying to only eat meat that I kill. So mm, yeah. there's a lot of personal hunting going on <laughs> that's uh, trying to make that happen and fishing. And so it just kind of starts to snowball and I start to really listen to what the path is in front of me. And it took a lot of time for me to step away from my old life. The old life was into supplements and health and fitness and all that kind of stuff. And to really step away from that into a new, a whole new arena, um, it didn't come with its it didn't come without challenges it came with a lot of self doubt but within the past year 2020 i've really stepped into it <clears throat> more fully and again another kind of cosmic thing that i would never have guessed that just something small like the domain sacredhunting.com the fact that that was available for $10 is so baffling to me <laughs> that nobody would have registered that but that is the brand and that is uh yeah where we are today from a very very quick snowballing that's for sure the hunting that you did for the elk which got made into a documentary is it is that something that's still uh, ongoing or is that doc out there it is still ongoing. We okay. raised some more money, finished production, and now we're piecing together all the post-production. Oh, right. So this is like this is imminent. We're, 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 uh, how, what are we talking like? Six months or 
Is that well, being too optimistic? Yeah, the f- the funding needs to come through, and it's a bit challenging to get it in the COVID environment. Of course, yeah. But you know, we have we have the hardest stuff done, so I'm optimistic it'll be done at the right time. Again, I feel very much like I needed this time, I needed this delay in order to refine my experiences, in order to be able to fully step into this, and so I. I don't know when it'll come out, but I know it'll come out at the right time. Cool. And are we talking sort of a feature length documentary? Yeah, feature length. I mean, I'll, I won't name, well, even if I name dropped, I don't think anyone would get it, but I'll put some, I'll name drop some of the films. I mean, we have like the post production manager helped with Free Solo, the agent yep. helped with Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Um, we just got an EP that did some really, really, really big films that many people in your audience would have heard of. So um, cool. I'm excited for the team, and I, I, you know, I know I know it's imminent. It's just a matter of me being patient for when that time comes. Incredible. And through this same time period, you you also started a podcast because you're a podcaster too. I am. I am a podcaster. Yeah. What? What? Uh, what made you t- t- start that and, and and pick it up as another medium to engage with people? Well, I have a problem shutting up. First of all, <laughs> and I like expressing myself. I like, more importantly, to to share and to evaluate interesting ideas and interesting ways of being. And I think all of us have a desire to create at some level. And for some people, it might be creating in a piece of art, in a piece of music, in a piece of film, such as yourself. I like creating in a conversational way, in a evocative, thought-provoking kind of way. And that's really what my podcast is about. And as you as you know, you know, it's just the Monsel Denton podcast. So it's it's just my name. It's broad enough where I get to explore a lot of different things. And for me, a fundamental piece, and this is one thing that hunting does so well for me, is is I think we collectively, especially 2020, can feel that something about civilization feels kind of broken, the way that we relate to other humans, the way that we relate to the planet, the way that we relate to uh, our time, our mortality. And that's what I wanted to explore with some really, you know, deep thinkers. And um, so I've been, you know, I've been blessed to have some amazing guests. And uh, I feel like really excited when I get to listen to my own podcast because it's very different when I'm asking questions. I'm trying to ask the best, most interesting questions when I'm listening. I can just listen for content. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Sometimes, although I hate hearing myself back, uh, obviously I, I edit them, so I have to listen to the podcast back to edit out, normally to take my fumbles out. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's having that sort of second listen through from fantastic guests. Uh, I, I sort of, in a selfish way, that's part of the reason that I do it. I, I want to have these conversations so that they engage with the wider world, but it also gives me an excuse to speak with people that I might otherwise not have a reason to. And that sort of second listen through when I when my brain isn't running ahead to try and work out 
how I carry a conversation forward or what the next question might be or what I want to dig into a little bit more. It really lets me sort of appreciate the gravity of uh, some of the things that my guests have said. So yeah, I can totally appreciate that as well. And you've you've done some incredible uh, deep dives into very uh, emotional and, and important conversations with the guests that you've had on your podcast. Yeah, I mean, really, really enjoyable conversations, really deep. I, you know, in some ways, like attracts like. And so I think I've done a fairly good job of uh, showing myself enough so that other people show up fully and uh, having conversations that have some substance to them, not even just, you know, the bigger guests like I've had, like Dennis McKenna or Charles Eisenstein, but even just some of the friends of mine, like Peter, who co-founded the men's group that I'm a part of, or, you know, Jordan Reasoner, who's a backcountry hunter, who you, you may know. Um, we just had a really, you know, deep conversation about what it means to, to hunt in the backcountry. And I'm, I'm, like you said, I'm, I'm really, uh, I feel very privileged and grateful to, to have the podcast. Mm. Uh, just as I sort of get towards the end of this podcast and bring it to a close, I just wanted to draw back to something that you mentioned right at the start, because it seems very relevant to the current discussions being had in the sort of the outdoor space and uh, the hunting community. And uh, I mean, it couldn't be more relevant to uh, the unrestlessness that is happening and the issues that are happening, particularly over in America right now, where you, you pointed out that growing up, there was this uh, certain uncomfortableness about the fact that you were half Indian, you were a, a person of color. In the outdoors space, how have you found that uh, a, a barrier? Because I know that it's it's a question that has been raised in recent months for very obvious reasons, as it not being as welcoming as it can be, intended or not. What has your personal experience been of that? I'm really curious to know uh, if it's been a positive one or whether you can give sort of feedback as to, to what that's been for you especially coming into it like with your eyes wide open and very aware as a somebody in your late 20s? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that my experience has been, for the most part, very positive. And I think there's a, I think one of the reasons for that is a shared camaraderie in understanding the world in a little bit different of a way than people who don't hunt. And in my experience, I could, you know, I remember a lot of my ex-girlfriend's family came from rural Arkansas and there was some question about whether they would accept me. And one of the things that we connected on the most was hunting because it was something that they did, something that they respected. And it was something that I was passionate about. And, you know, race has always been something that's in my life and it's been a process to work through it. And I'm not, this isn't to say that uh, everybody experiences, every person of color experiences it this way, but I 
can have a situation where somebody may exhibit body language where they might not be too open to me, for example. And one of the stories that I go to pretty quickly, if their body language suggests they're not very receptive or maybe they don't like me, I go to this story of they don't like me, they don't accept me, and it's because of my race that they don't accept me. And I have to stop myself, zoom out of that feeling and recognize, one, I have no idea what they're experiencing. Their body language may say one thing, but I don't know what it actually means. Number two, even if they don't like me, I don't actually know that there's any ill will about my race. I've never asked anybody. And three, even if it did have something to do with my race, it says more about them than it says about me. And so I've been really conscious of my own victim narrative. And I think that a lot of people can fall into that if they haven't done enough, you know, interpersonal work on their own relationship to race. And I'm not saying that racism doesn't happen, but you can imagine somebody who already questions their race because of you know, decades, hundreds of years of trauma. So they're already questioning their race. Then they come into an environment where maybe they're even more of a minority. It's very easy to simply feel that other people are racist, even when they're not. And so I very much take the approach that there's a lot of my own self-responsibility that comes into play when it when there's any kind of disparaging feelings around race and i imagine that happens with other people and i imagine there's also some racism in the hunting world but you know as far as people who are thought leaders in the space uh, i don't I definitely don't experience it, and I imagine uh, the that kind of uh, what's what's called in the literature what's called internalized racism is a factor as well. I mean, yeah, I I ask you for your experience because no one can be asked to sort of project what the experience of of, of other people may or may not be. So you know, we we can only ever speak of our own experiences of an activity or or within a space or between uh, other people. So I, I thought it was a really important question to ask just to see what your take on it was uh, from your your own journey through it for the last couple of years. I, I do wonder, though, whether you think uh, as the – and I'm not even just talking about the, the, the hunting space here. I mean, the, the outdoor space in general, whether more can be done – to maybe break down barriers, even if they don't exist, if they are perceived uh, barriers or this sort of notion that um, people of color are not wanted within that space, whether they actually exist or whether they're just a perception that they exist, it doesn't really matter. It's still a barrier. What more can be done uh, to help level that and be more welcoming? Well... I imagine there's some 
cultural overlap, some cultural. It's almost like entanglement that happens in rural hunting culture and perhaps more, um, you know, class or race uh, segmentation, so to speak. The hard part is that traditions and some old cultural way of doing things sometimes are, again, entangled with racist beliefs or even just prejudiced perspectives and in ways that we don't even fully know. And, you know, honestly, I don't feel that I'm in any kind of place to make any kind of recommendations for the the hunting world or the outdoor world or anything like that. I'm, 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 I'm new to it myself, but I can only speak for what I'm doing. And, 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 and I, I do believe that to hear so much feedback from people who have never hunted before, most, I would say 90% of the people that I facilitate hunting experiences for have never hunted before. And to do interviews with them after the fact, you know, I've been doing like kind of market research type interviews to, to hear the, the, the phrasing that they use about hunting, like gun nuts, trophy hunters, like there's so much of a perception around what hunting is for, for better, for worse. And the approach that I bring to them resonate so much more with them that that's my little contribution to broadening the conversation because I think that there's at least in my experience I I can't speak to the race specifically although I have had you know people of other races and African-Americans who are have come to my experiences the fact that they were shut off to hunting when they were when it was represented to them in one way but they were open to it when it was represented in a different way is telling and i imagine it's also telling to people of color who confronted with a yeah, standard narrative around hunting are not interested and then introduced in some other way might be more interested and you know i mean for me the way that i approach it without going into too much detail is, is it's, it's, it's very emotionally, it's very emotional. It's very emotional. It's very, in a lot of ways, it's very like spiritually oriented, connection oriented. And I think that that's something that everybody is seeking or interested in. And so it kind of, it, it gets past certain walls in ways that, you know, ATV riding, you know, thermal scope night hunting doesn't do for the average person of color. Yeah. Yeah. I can, the, the parallel that I can draw to that is that when my brother and I started filming, uh, like four or five years ago, when we started our company, uh, we, as a, as a showcase, for sort of filming skill and ability we we had no portfolio so i'd been writing in the the hunting industry for a long time so i got some sponsorship together 
and we filmed ourselves doing some hunting and that was basically what started the company but uh, i tell you that because when those films went out over the sort of the next year that followed we had a lot of people contacting us just through the website saying we really love the the way that you hunt and we want to be able to experience hunting the way that you do how can we do that where can we go and there wasn't really anywhere, not at home, not where we lived. There wasn't anywhere that you could really do it like that. And so we started running uh, hunting camps for small numbers of people, just a couple through the winter months, uh, just focused on uh, – we never did anything uh, during – any of the 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 uh, like the male part of the seasons, it was always during the the female culling part of the season. So it was purely management and population control, and it, it was amazing how many people came to that because uh, came to that with uh, a narrative that they'd wanted to try it before, but they had never really found a way that they were comfortable doing it. And they they liked this this notion of being a hundred percent responsible from the moment that you set foot out into the hills to the moment that you leave, and that it very much being about understanding the landscape and the populations that you are taking life from, and then taking that meat home and enjoying it. And in fact, we we actually would eat a lot of meat in camp over the couple of days as well. And it and it really appealed to people on a different level and drew uh, people into the hunting space who felt like they couldn't enter it with the other uh, types of hunting that were available. And I, I think that, that that also speaks to this somewhat uh, unfortunate tribalism that there is within probably most outdoor recreation communities, but I can speak of like the hunting and fishing space where one form of fishing or hunting or if you're not hardcore enough or you prefer just to sit in tree stands is seen as um, better in some way than another form of hunting or you're less of a hunter or you're less of a fisher or you're less of, of a person who enjoys nature if you don't uh, if you if you're not prepared to graft for 14 days and nearly die by the time you get to the end of the hunt, which I think is bullshit, uh, you know I think there's a lot of ways to to appreciate it and and enjoy it and to try and exclude people because they don't somehow fit within your camp is uh, very short sighted and I think says a lot about those people. Yeah, I like to say that shadow. The part that we hide, repress, deny, it is something all of us have. Sometimes it shows up in different ways for different people, alcoholism, addiction, whatever the case is. But shadow gets its way into everything, and hunting is no different, unfortunately. And there are beautiful things of hunting, and there are beautiful role models such as yourself and your brother, and I'm a big fan of modern huntsmen. and there are obviously more shadowy type of behavior and I confront it. I'm sure you confront it on a regular basis. And the only way that I've ever had any significant change on my parents, my friends, anybody that I love that I want to see grow and evolve has been 
by doing my own work and showing up as best as I can and as fully as I can in a way that inspires them. And so hopefully with conversations like this, with the work that both of us are doing independently, we can have that kind of an impact on them without needing to revert to the tribalism ourselves and speak with some level of care and empathy to those perspectives as as uh, however we may deem them. Mansell, that is a beautiful way to bring this podcast to a close. Thank you so much for taking the time out this evening. Uh, well, it's this evening for me. It's probably the middle of the day for you. Uh, it, it's been a, an insightful and thoroughly enjoyable chat today and uh, i can't wait to to bring this to to everybody to to listen and if anybody wants to check out what you're doing where are the best places what are your uh, social media handles and website and what have you yeah thank you for having me thank you for asking these questions and being open to a lot of the mythical uh, sides of my story and um yeah, hopefully it's uh, hopefully it's been compelling for the audience as well. Yeah, my my handle on Instagram is at uh, Monsal Denton. It's just my name, M A N S A L, and then Denton. And also, people can find my whole organization, SacredHunting.com, and my podcast is the Monsal Denton Podcast. And I would love for people to go consume consume all the uh, information and if anything stands out or resonates please feel free to to reach out i'm i'm not that famous yet so i can answer all your questions <laughs> well that's brilliant i hope that at some point when one day i'm allowed to freely travel to america again when covid decides to disappear back into the shadows that it came from uh maybe you and i can uh meet up and, and hunt or at least have a beer uh, i do get to texas and i have reasons to go back to texas again as soon as i can so uh, that would be awesome i would love to see you, brother and that's it for now join me again next time when we take another walk into the wilderness